If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 2. Okay, Mark, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down to the end of verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We've probably heard this story before, right? We've, we've heard it in Sunday school. We had the, the neat little flannel graphs. Did anybody else grow up with that? The flannel graph thing? That I still don't understand how they stuck to that. But uh, you get the flannel graph and you get the house and you get Jesus inside and the four guys carrying him. And we've heard this story before and we're, we're well familiar with what we think it looks like, even if it's just from our Sunday school memory of the pictures that we saw but it's important for us as we move into this story not to, um, not to forget all that stuff, but also not to bring some of that baggage along, some things that we just kind of assumed about it. That story can sometimes be told out of context, especially when you're telling it to five-year-olds, six-year-olds, to kids. We're just telling them this story. We're not give them, giving them the greater context of what's happened um, up until this point in the Gospel of Mark. And what we've seen as we've moved through chapter one is we've seen Jesus over and over and over again One, heal people, heal people of evil spirits, demons, casting them out, healing people of fevers. We just saw Jesus heal the leper, and we've seen Jesus coming and saying very emphatically that I've come to preach, and yet every time he's confronted with people who have physical needs, he has compassion on them. He stops what he's doing, and he he helps them, he heals them, he cleanses them. But there's always this tagline at the end of his healings for them to be silent, Jesus sends out the people who have been healed and he says, don't tell anybody what's just happened. He silences the demons themselves as he casts them out, even though they know better than the crowd who Jesus is. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus says, silent, be gone, no more talking out of you. And when Jesus sent out the leper, he healed him and he said, go out and see to it that you say nothing to anyone. Just go and do what you're supposed to do according to the law. Go show yourselves to the priests, offer your sacrifice, but don't tell anybody. What we saw at the end of last week was he went out and he blabbed to everybody, which to be fair, wouldn't you? (laughs) Like, guys, look, don't you remember how, 
how gross my skin was, whatever kind of disease this guy had, whatever kind of leprosy was specific to him, don't you think you would have gone out, you would have gone to your family and your friends, the people who didn't want to come close to you because you were unclean, all of a sudden now you're clean, wouldn't you have gone out and talked to these people and said, look at, look at what Jesus has done for me? But what Jesus is doing in silencing all of these people is he's making sure that people don't misunderstand who he is. Misunderstand who he is as the Messiah, his messianic identity. He doesn't want to be misunderstood as simply a miracle worker, a guy who can do some neat tricks and heal some people. So Jesus keeps people silent throughout the first chapter. Now he breaks his silence. Moving into chapter two, he breaks his silence and he actually induces conflict. This is moving into a section in Mark where there's conflict after conflict with the scribes, with the teachers of the law, the religious rulers. He's inducing conflict, he's breaking his silence, but it's on his own terms. He's doing it in, in the way that he wants. He's not letting people run out all over the place where they're, they're just saying whatever they want and they're, they're thinking whatever they want to think. Jesus is coming to reveal his messianic identity in this passage on his own terms. He will reveal who he is, but he is going to do that. He's not going to let anybody else do that for him. And so we see in verse 1, Jesus is home. It was reported that he was home. He's moved from Nazareth. Remember, he's not Jesus of Capernaum. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Joseph was from Nazareth. That's where he was the carpenter. Jesus takes over the family business, but now he's, he's moved on from the family business. He's set up home base for ministry here in Capernaum. And we saw that he, he went into Capernaum. He went into the region of Galilee. And that's where Simon and Peter were. That's where or Simon, Peter, and Andrew were. And James and John, the fishermen, he calls them to come follow him. That's where Simon and Andrew lived with Simon's mother-in-law. We saw that, was that last week? Two weeks ago? Last week. Um, the family home. And this is likely the house that we're talking about. It's likely where they gathered. This was now Jesus and his disciples, their home base. They'd come back, they'd refuel, they'd re-energize, and they'd go out. Except that's not what's happening, is that there's people gathering at the door. Not so much rest and relaxation when he comes home. He left Capernaum in chapter 1, verses 38 and 39. He goes out so that he might preach the kingdom. Jesus says, that's why I've come, to preach the good news. Not to heal specifically, not to heal physically, but to heal spiritually. And that's what he's doing, even as these crowds come. He may have come back to rest. They may have come back to just get some food. They may have come back to sleep. We're not quite sure exactly why, but they're back home. And the crowds gather. And what is Jesus doing? The end of verse 2, and he was preaching the word to them. Jesus never loses sight of why he's come, the real reason why he's here. He will always have compassion on people, but he never gives up preaching. And he preaches to the crowds, even though they're there with alternative motives. We'll see this over and over again with the crowds as they continually come to Jesus because they want to see him do something. They want to see somebody else healed. They want to see some other um, food multiplied into more food. They want to see something happen. And Jesus simply preaches. And then in verse 3, there's this man carried by four men and they can't get through the door. This man can't get to Jesus on his own. For two reasons. He can't get to Jesus, one, because he can't walk. He physically cannot get there. And two, he can't get to Jesus because of the crowds. And that will mark the crowds in Mark. We'll see this over and over again is that the crowds in Mark, they're not a symbol of repentance and faith and coming to Jesus because they want to see Jesus. They're actually just a crowd that gets in the way of other people who really want to see Jesus. 
and they can't get through the crowd. So what do they do? They bypass the crowd by going through the roof of the house. And the house, a house in Israel would not have been like the homes that we have, the houses that we have in North America or the vast majority of the world, I guess. And the climate, the temperature, everything else taken into consideration, they were just squares. Um, roughly, my study Bible said 24 feet by 24 feet. It was just a square, straight up. It had bricks, stick, clay. They fashioned basically just a square on the ground. It went straight up and they would have levels inside, second floors, and they would have ladders and they would, they would have stuff in there. Um, they would have stairs going up the outside so that you could sit on the roof. And the roof was made with beams going across, with branches put on top, and clay and dirt, and, and it would harden in the sun and you could actually sit on it. You could stand on it. And they, people would actually go out and they'd sit and they'd eat meals up there. And they would go out for... Um, just getting peace and quiet, get away from the smell um, because there's no uh, HVAC units in these homes. There's no air circulation in there. And because in all likelihood, if you had animals, which many people did, the animals stayed in the house with you because if you left them outside, they were going to be stolen overnight. So the animals were kept inside. So it's not a great smelling place, but it's home. And these guys, they go up the stairs, they break through the roof and they lower the man down to see Jesus, to get him right front and center with Jesus. And in verse 5, we see that when Jesus sees their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their action, their in part uh, destructive action of destroying somebody's house. They see, he sees their action of doing everything possible to get their friend to see Jesus, he sees that as faith. And that's something that's never marked of the crowds. The crowds are pushing and shoving to get into this house, into the courtyard, which, depending on how big this house actually was and um, whether there were additions and whether there was an exterior courtyard and wall around it, we don't know. There could have been anywhere between 30 and 50 people kind of jamming into this small space. And we're not told anything about their faith. We're not told anything about the crowd's faith earlier in chapter 1, not here. And the crowds continually come to Jesus, but they have not true faith. And Jesus calls this man son, indicating, well, there's this whole authority thing that we could go down this massive tangent with authority. One thing that I think is important because of the, 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 the craziness of what Jesus has just said, and we'll see that in the Pharisees and the scribes' response, it's just absolutely insane, but it's also not the reason why this guy showed up. This guy showed up because he couldn't walk, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And why would Jesus do that? Why would he call him son? Well, for me, I see the word son, and there's a whole... There's a whole theology around sonship and what it means for Jesus to call him son. But my father has seen all of my flaws as I grew up. Well, he still sees some of my flaws even now as I've moved out of the house. My father knows me better than most people do. He raised me. He's seen my heart in action. He's seen my actions in action. And for Jesus to call this man son, I think there's, in some sense, Jesus is declaring to this man, whoever he is, we don't get his name. I know your needs better than you do. I know your heart better than you know your own heart. 
And as much as a father can look at his son and he can, he can actually see, and it, it's, this is true of parents, mothers with daughters, fathers with sons, you look at your kids and you can see their hearts, right? Right? <laughs> like, you, you've seen what your kids are like. You've seen them at their best and you've seen them at their worst. And even though they may think they know what they need, you know what they truly need. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgives his sins. Not, he doesn't say the Lord has forgiven your sins. That's something that the prophets in the Old Testament did. They could declare to people, to a nation, to individuals, the Lord has removed your sin. The Lord has taken your sins away. The Lord has forgiven you. You think of the example of, of David and Nathan. David sins with Bathsheba, then he gets her pregnant, and then he sins again by trying to construe and lie and get Bathsheba's husband to come and sleep with her so that he can kind of get out of this mess that he's created. But he's too noble. He's more righteous. So he construes a battlefield where... Um, this man is then sent off and he's put at the front and, and the, the rest of the army draws back and he's killed. So David has murder arranged to get out of this sin. And then Nathan comes with that, um, that parable of the rich man with lots of sheep and the poor man with just one sheep. And David, in his righteous indignation, who is this man? We shall have justice against him. And Nathan turns to him and says, you are the man. You are the one who's done this. And David repents. That's what Psalm 51 is all about. David's repentance. David's outcry of utter displeasure for the sin that he's now, he now sees and he repents before God. And Nathan declares, your sins have been taken away. Not because Nathan has forgiven his sins, but because the Lord, communicating through the prophet Nathan, the Lord doesn't hold this against you. The Lord has forgiven you. And prophets could do that speaking for the Lord, but not as the Lord. It was the Lord that forgave sins, not the man, not the prophet. But Jesus himself forgives the sins. And we know that Jesus is declaring that he is the one that is forgiving the sins precisely because of the scribe's response. They understand what Jesus is doing and they're indignant towards what he said. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is, they understand what Jesus is saying, not to say that the Lord has taken away this man's sins. Jesus himself is saying, I forgive your sins. I am removing the sins that you have. And they are, of course, upset. That's a mild way to put it. They're indignant. They're angry. We will see this over and over again because, as we saw in chapter one, they're already on edge Because people have been saying, who is this one that's teaching, not like the authority of the scribes. We've never heard this kind of authority before. We've never seen this kind of teaching. They're already put on edge because Jesus is starting to push them out of the spotlight. Jesus has this kind of authority and teaches with a different kind of authority than they do. And they're upset by what this man says. Only God can forgive sins. Notice in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. That's just a small little couple of words, just a phrase. They were sitting there. And I think there's two reasons why Mark says that they are sitting there. Number one, it's because they were actually sitting there. (laughs) Because they were actually just sitting. So he's just describing what they were doing. But two, because if we understand um, rabbinic, how, how rabbis taught, we would understand that what's going on here is that what they're doing is taking the place of authority. 
rabbis, scribes, teachers of the law, they sat when they taught. The way that we do things now is not how they did things. In fact, you guys would all be standing and I would be sitting. I would be the one with, coming with authority, coming with the teaching, and I would sit and you would all stand and gather around. And this is why we see throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is sitting while he's teaching. He's taking that place of authority as he teaches. These scribes are sitting. They've taken that place of authority, and yet they don't understand. They presume to teach Jesus, even though Jesus is the one there to teach them. They take that authority, and they speak with authority, but only in their minds. And notice how it says that they, they were questioning in their hearts. They didn't actually speak out loud. They don't speak audibly. Maybe they're too stunned to talk. Maybe they're just like, what is this guy doing? Like, why in the world? Who in their right mind would think that they, they would say that? Who would do such a thing? And maybe it's because they're, they're trying to come up with a good response. We're not told why they're silent. But they question within their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, what they're saying is absolutely right if Jesus is not God. If this were any other human being who spoke this way, they would be 100% right. They sit in the place of authority, and yet for all the authority that they have, for all of the teaching and the knowledge that they have, they still can't see Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God. If Jesus isn't God, if Jesus doesn't have the authority of God, then they're right. But of course, they're wrong. And immediately, Jesus, this is verse 8, perceiving in his spirit. This is further evidence that he actually is divine. He knows what they're thinking. Who alone can know the thoughts and the heart of man without anybody speaking it? Only God can know the hearts of man. And in fact, this is where God can say to all of us, Son, I know you better than, your own, than you know yourself. I know the depths of your heart better than you do. And Jesus, knowing exactly what they're thinking, knowing exactly what their problem is, says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? You could probably flip-flop either way in terms of which is easier. Well, which is easier to say? Well, if I'm going to say, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? I can't say that. So it's easier for me to say, take up your bed and walk. Yet on the flip side, if I say take up your bed and walk, it's pretty obvious whether I can actually heal this guy or not, whether he gets up or not. So if he can't get up, if he can't get up and walk, maybe it's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can validate that. Nobody can actually show that. There's no um, observable proof that, that this man's sins are forgiven. So maybe I'll say that instead of take up your bed and walk. I think the point is not to actually figure out which is easier. Jesus asked the question, which is easier? But I think the answer is that both are equally impossible for man. That is, man has no authority to forgive sins and man has no power to heal the lame. So it doesn't matter which is easier because both are impossible for you and I to do. The other side of that coin is both are equally easy for God. And God will have no problem healing this man of his paralysis. And God has no difficulty in forgiving sin. Both are equally easy for God, and both are equally hard for us. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear 
in asking that question, he's setting the scribes up, he's setting the teachers of the law up so that they might be working in their mind, well, which is easier. He's setting them up to make it abundantly clear that what is about to happen is for them to understand that he can forgive sins. One is observable, making a lame man walk. One is not observable, forgiving sins. Man can't do either. God can do both. And what is about to happen is to prove that what Jesus is doing, he is acting, not just in God's place with God's power, but as God himself. Jesus can forgive sins. He can do what only God can do. And he uses only his voice. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. We see this over and over again. Just speaking. The power of Jesus' voice, the authority carried in the voice of the Son of God is enough to get results. And I think I've used this example before where my voice barely gets any results anywhere, especially with my kids. And I don't know, parents, you've probably felt this before, right? Where you say things over and over and over again and you just wish that you would, the, the kids would get it the first time, right? I've already told you once, how was I not clear? Don't do that. And they do it again. Our voice doesn't always carry the authority we want, and yet what we see over and over again is the authority of Jesus expressed in merely his voice gets results. And the results of what will happen, that is, Jesus speaks, and the results of his speaking, the healing that will take place, validates his authority that he's just claimed. So he's claimed to be able to forgive sins, and now he's claiming to heal this man. And if If this happens, if the healing happens, that validates what he's claimed in forgiving sins. And what that means is Jesus is God. If he can't heal, we can't validate the forgiveness of sins, but it's a pretty good indication if he can't heal, he can't do this. In which case, there's no hope for us. But what happens? In verse 12, he rose and immediately, immediately, again, that's that's the phrase Mark loves, immediately, immediately, immediately it happens, immediate healing he picks up his bed and he goes home and there's immediate awe, immediate wonder. They're all amazed. Again, this isn't equated with faith and repentance. They're dumbstruck. They're, they're amazed at what has just happened before their eyes and yet they, the crowds, along with the scribes, do not see Jesus. They don't understand what he's just done. I said I can forgive sins. I've forgiven this man of his sins. I've healed to prove to you that because both are only something God can do, that I am God. And they did give glory to God. We've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen a man forgive sins. We've never seen a man heal like this. But we're not told that they repented and believed in him, which was the the message that Jesus was preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come in Jesus Christ. They've never seen anything like this before and yet they still don't see Jesus clearly. They still don't see him for who he is and we're not told anything about the four men. We're not told anything about the paralytic. Mark just moves on with his narrative. He moves on to uh, another immediately. But the point is, Jesus sees faith. And when Jesus sees faith, forgiveness happens, even if that's not the reason why they came. 
So I've got two things. That's just the, the summary of, of the passage. I've got two things that I think are helpful for us, points of application for us to take away. The first one is this. These four men do everything in their power to make sure that their friend gets to Jesus. Everything possible because they believe, that is, they have faith. Jesus says they have faith. They have faith that Jesus is the only answer, that he alone is the all-sufficient one to heal. There were other options for healing. There was that pool that people who were sick and lame and injured would, would sit by. And the theory was an angel would come down and that he would swirl the pool. And if you got in quick enough, if you were the first one in, then maybe there would be some divine blessing put on you and you would be healed of your infirmities. There were other options. But these four see Jesus as the only option. And this man missed out the first time Jesus was in town. Remember the crowds came and there were lots of people there uh, the first time Jesus was in town. And this man, so when it, when it says that the whole city was gathered there, it's not that every individual was there because this individual apparently missed out. Why? Well, he couldn't walk. Of course he couldn't get to the house where Jesus was. So the second time around, these four men do everything in their power to make sure that this man gets to see Jesus. They are willing to destroy somebody's house, in part, not the whole thing. They didn't bulldoze it. But they're willing to, to break apart somebody's house to make sure that Jesus can see this man so that this man can get to Jesus. They're willing to interrupt Jesus teaching, interrupt the rabbi as he teaches the crowds, interrupt the rabbi doing the one thing that we've been told he's come to do, which is preach. But they're willing to break in. They're willing to take on, because again, remember these communities, there's not 200,000 people in this small city. Everybody in all likelihood relied on Peter and Andrew and James and John for their, their fishing industry. Their fishing probably fed the city. That was their main source of fish. And whoever these four guys are were likely known by the crowd. The people in the crowd would have seen this paralytic come down. They would have recognized him. They would have looked up and seen four guys lowering him down and they would have known who those four guys were. And they were willing, regardless of whatever social stigma was going to come attached to that, breaking somebody's house apart, lowering somebody down, they were willing to do that because they knew their friend needed to see Jesus. We're told that their actions showed their faith. Now, their actions did not equal faith. It did not produce faith. But it proved their faith to be true. You think of James chapter 2 where where James says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be hearers and doers. That's in chapter 1. And then chapter 2, he says, show me your faith by your works. You're not working up your faith through your works, but you have faith. These guys had genuine faith in Jesus, that Jesus could heal their friend. And they did whatever they needed to do. And I wonder how many of us, this is the point of application from this point, are we willing to do what, what is ever, whatever is necessary to make sure that people see Jesus? That we're willing to take on whatever social stigma or whatever, even if slightly true accusations of house destroyer. Are we willing to take on whatever negative 
impact from the community's perspective? Are we willing to take that on to get people to see Jesus? Because that's what they need above everything else. Do we truly believe that seeing Jesus is the most important thing for our kids, for our neighbors, for our families and friends? Is Jesus the only and all-sufficient person to heal? We claim that. And I think we truly believe that. And yet, have we taken that, that step of action to prove that? Not to make sure that our faith is true. Our faith is true. Jesus has said that our faith is true. And yet, are we, are we acting that out? Are we doing whatever's possible to make sure that people can see Jesus? I was reading through some, some notes on John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and I think C.S. Lewis kind of picked up on his quote, and I might butcher the quote specifically. But they both said something along the lines of, you will either influence people towards heaven or towards hell. Those are the only two options that you've got. People are bound either for heaven or for hell. And you, and this wasn't meant to be a scare tactic. It was actually meant in their writings. They were actually trying to give people joy and excitement. You actually get to be used of the king of kings to actually influence people, to help people see Jesus more. But the other side of that is, is if you're not, you might be influencing people towards hell. And I think... You could say that, well, I'm not doing either. I'm just kind of sitting in the middle. But if you're not helping people see Jesus, I think that's an influence towards hell. You're not helping people see more clearly who Jesus is. Again, we can't change hearts. We can't do the Spirit's work in somebody's heart of actually opening their eyes to see Jesus clearly and truly. And again, the scribes and the crowds, they were all there and they saw Jesus physically and yet they had no faith. But what are we doing to make sure that people can see Jesus clearly? Maybe it's a, a, a rebuke in part to our own hearts and lives. What are we doing that actually puts the blinders on people? How does my influence, how does my testimony, I claim to be a Christian and yet in what ways am I actually pushing people away from Jesus? If that's what Christianity is like, I'm not sure I want that. In what ways do we do that? That's a personal point. That's a personal question that I think each of us should take time to consider and work through and go, what are some things that I need to change? What are some steps I need to take in, in the right direction to help people see Jesus clearly? Because we've come to see Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world so that you and I coming to the cross in repentance and faith can have that burden removed and the clothing of Jesus, his righteousness put on us. We've, we've come to believe that. We've come to see that. We've come to see Jesus. And it's the most exciting thing in the world to help others see Jesus too. Second point of application, which is again more internal, Although the man was not looking for forgiveness, he came because he had physical paralysis. Jesus knows what this man really needs. Jesus looked past the obvious. Everyone would have seen that this man had physical paralysis, that he couldn't walk. And yet, Jesus looks past that to the spiritual paralysis that he has, and he heals that first. 
He puts priority on where this man's soul, his eternal destiny will be. He puts priority on that rather than if the man can walk or not. His declaration, and this is where moving out of chapter 1 and all the silence, and now Jesus is speaking and he's being very clear. He's making sure that right now there is no misunderstanding about who Jesus is and why he's come. Can Jesus heal? Yes. Does he have compassion on all who come to him? Yes, absolutely. Can he heal fevers? Can he heal leprosy? Can he heal evil spirits? Can he drive out the kingdom of Satan by the power of the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Yet what's the point? Jesus is saying, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me and my messianic identity. I'm not just a miracle worker. I've come to redeem lost souls. I've come to forgive. I've come to heal. The forgiveness of sins is why he came. It's his priority. That's the entire message of the kingdom. That's the word that he's preaching to them in verse 2. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, what is the message that we take to people? We want people to see Jesus. We want to be a good influence and not a bad influence for helping people see Jesus. We don't want to get in the way. And yet, what's the message, the true message that we're actually trying to bring to people? I've seen all over the internet um, the the mental health um, bulletins from Ford and Trudeau. And I think it was, was it Friday or Thursday was Bell Let's Talk Day? It was sometime this past week. Mental health, anxiety, fear, confusion, Let's talk about this. And are we presenting Jesus merely as an alternative to alcohol? That is, some people turn to the bottle, which is why the LCBO has been deemed essential by our provincial government and federal government. Um, What would we do if we closed that down and all of the people who rely on the bottle for the anxiety and fear that they have, people go into withdrawal? What would we do with all these alcoholics running around with no alcohol? What would we possibly do then? Our system would be overrun. And in some sense, I want to say, well, if that's how some people cope, what about the church? What about the church? This is how, this is the only method for coping. This is the only method for anxiety. This is the only, Jesus is the only way to be seen. Jesus is the only answer to remove all of that fear and anxiety from your heart, to find true rest. And yet, are we just presenting Jesus as, oh yeah, Come to Jesus, try him out for a little bit, and your fears will go away. Is that what we're presenting him as? It's true. It is absolutely 100% true that to rely on Jesus means that we will have fear and anxiety taken away. But what's the priority in the message that we're bringing to people? Is it that, yeah, God can heal. He can. If you've got a bad back, come to Jesus. He might make that better for you. Come to Jesus. He might fix your legs. Is that, is that the message? We are promised that when he comes back in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have brand new bodies. It's absolutely true that we will be healed. We will be restored. Our bodies will be put back together better than they've ever been before. And yet, what's the message of the kingdom? Not our physical bodies. That's not the priority. It's your spiritual state. And I think of my kids. I'll use my kids as an example. Why do I want my kids to see Jesus? So that they don't get into drugs when they're teenagers? 
so that they make wiser decisions when they move off to college? All of those being true, that if we are walking with Jesus, we will hopefully, by God's grace, make better decisions as we mature. And yet, is that the only reason? Or is it because I want my kids to see Jesus because they're damned to hell if they don't? What's our message? That the Son of Man has come. He has come with the authority of God himself. And the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And Jesus will often use this phrase of himself, Son of Man. And there's a whole theology around that. We don't have time to, to work through that. But I will say this. Mark will use the Son of Man title for Jesus as Jesus takes that on himself. And the vast majority of the time that, that Jesus is talking about himself as the Son of Man, it's in the context of suffering. The Son of Man has come to suffer. And what we're told right at the outset is that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Then as we see how that will play out is that Jesus, as the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins through what he will suffer. That he will suffer not just social stigma, not just attack from scribes and teachers of the law. He will suffer physical abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse, and he will ultimately be led away and crucified on a cross and he will suffer there in your place and in mine. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins and what does that look like? How does that play out? It plays out at the cross. That's how sins are forgiven. Your sin can be forgiven and will be forgiven when we come to the cross in repentance and faith because of what he's done on the cross. That's the message that we believe. That's the message I preach and you and you preach as you go out and you teach your kids and as you talk with neighbors and as you talk with other people. That's what we talk about at Bible study is the message of the Son of Man coming to forgive sins on the cross. That's where we hang our hat, so to speak. But what are we doing and how are we doing it? In what way are we seeking to bring this message, the only message of hope, to a world that desperately needs hope? In some ways, I can't answer that for you. In some ways, over the past year, you and I have been disconnected in ways that we never would have thought possible. And yet, what are we willing to do to help people see Jesus? To see that message more clearly that forgiveness is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to see Jesus more clearly. We've come to see him for who he is and we've trusted in him completely and fully and we have faith in him. Help us now to take that step of action, putting our faith into action. Help us to step out because we're not just bringing a really good idea, we're bringing the message that everyone in the world needs to hear. The most important thing that anybody could ever hear is that Jesus Christ has come to forgive sins. We pray that you would help us. Rebuke us if we need that. Show us the ways that we need to change, some of the things we need to stop. Help us to give us grace to pull up our socks and do better. And not in our own strength, but in the strength that you have given us. We thank you and praise you for the salvation that we have in you. And we thank you and praise you for the work that you will continue to do as the kingdom continues to go out. We thank you and praise you for those people that you will call to yourself. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.